Nero, Part Two, of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Nero, Part Two. Paragraphs 19 to 31. Twice only he undertook any foreign expeditions, one to Alexandria and the other to Achaia, but he abandoned the prosecution of the former on the very day fixed for his departure, by being deterred both by ill omens and the hazard of the voyage. For while he was making the circuit of the temples, having seated himself in that of Vesta, when he attempted to rise, the skirt of his robe stuck fast and he was instantly seized with such a dimness in his eyes that he could not see a yard before him. In Achaia he attempted to make a cut through the isthmus, and having made a speech encouraging his praetorians to set about the work, on a signal given by sound of trumpet, he first broke ground with a spade, and carried off a basketful of earth upon his shoulders. He made preparations for an expedition to the pass of the Caspian Mountains, forming a new legion out of his late levies in Italy, of men all six feet high, which he called the phalanx of Alexander the Great. These transactions, in part unexceptionable and in part highly commendable, I have brought into one view, in order to separate them from the scandalous and criminal part of his conduct, of which I shall now give an account. Among the other liberal arts which he was taught in his youth, he was instructed in music, and immediately after his advancement to the empire, he sent for Terpnus, a performer upon the harp, who flourished at that time with the highest reputation. Sitting with him for several days following, as he sang and played after supper until late at night, he began by degrees to practice upon the instrument himself. Nor did he omit any of those expedients which artists in music adopt for the preservation and improvement of their voices. He would lie upon his back with a sheet of lead upon his breast clear his stomach and bowels by vomits and clisters, and forbear the eating of fruits, or food prejudicial to the voice. Encouraged by his proficiency, though his voice was naturally neither loud nor clear, he was desirous of appearing upon the stage, frequently repeating amongst his friends a Greek proverb to this effect, that no one had any regard for music which they never heard. Accordingly he made his first public appearance at Naples, and although the theatre quivered with the sudden shock of an earthquake, he did not desist until he had finished the piece of music he had begun. He played and sung in the same place several times, and for several days together, taking only now and then a little respite to refresh his voice. Impatient of retirement, it was his custom to go from the bath to the theatre, and after dining in the orchestra, amidst a crowded assembly of the people, he promised them in Greek, that after he had drunk a little, he would give them a tune which would make their ears tingle. Being highly pleased with the songs that were sung in his praise by some Alexandrians belonging to the fleet just arrived at Naples, he sent for more of the like singers from Alexandria. At the same time he chose young men of the equestrian order, and about five thousand robust young fellows from the common people, on purpose to learn various kinds of applause, called bombi, imbriques, and testi, which they were to practice in his favour whenever he performed. They were divided into several parties, and were remarkable for their fine heads of hair, and were extremely well dressed with rings upon their left hands. 
The leaders of these bands had salaries of 40,000 sesterces allowed them. At Rome, also being extremely proud of his singing, he ordered the games called Neronia to be celebrated before the time fixed for their return. All now becoming importunate to hear his heavenly voice, he informed them that he would gratify those who desired it at the gardens. But the soldiers then on guard, seconding the voice of the people, he promised to comply with their request immediately, and with all his heart. He instantly ordered his name to be entered upon the list of musicians who proposed to contend, and having thrown his lot into the urn among the rest, took his turn, and entered, attended by the prefects of the Praetorian cohorts, bearing his harp, and followed by the military tribunes and several of his intimate friends. After he had taken his station and made the usual prelude, he commanded Cluvius Rufus, a man of consular rank, to proclaim in the theatre that he intended to sing the story of Niobe. This he accordingly did, and continued it until nearly ten o'clock, but deferred the disposal of the crown and the remaining part of the solemnity until the next year, that he might have more frequent opportunities of performing. But that being too long, he could not refrain from often appearing as a public performer during the interval. He made no scruple of exhibiting on the stage, even in the spectacles presented to the people by private persons, and was offered by one of the praetors no less than a million of sesterces for his services. He likewise sang tragedies in a mask, the visors of the heroes and gods, as also of the heroines and goddesses, being formed into a resemblance of his own face, and that of any woman he was in love with. Amongst the rest he sung Canache in Labour, Orestes the murderer of his mother, Oedipus blinded, and Hercules mad. In the last tragedy it is said that a young sentinel, posted at the entrance of the stage, seeing him in a prison dress and bound with fetters, as the fable of the play required, ran to his assistance. He had from his childhood an extravagant passion for horses, and his constant talk was of the Circensian races, notwithstanding it was prohibited him. Lamenting once among his fellow pupils the case of a charioteer of the Green Party, who was dragged around the circus at the tail of his chariot, and being reprimanded by his tutor for it, he pretended that he was talking of Hector. In the beginning of his reign he used to amuse himself daily with chariots drawn by four horses made of ivory upon a table. He attended at all the lesser exhibitions in the circus, at first privately, but at last openly so that nobody ever doubted of his presence on any particular day. Nor did he conceal his desire to have the number of the prizes doubled, so that the races being increased accordingly, the diversion continued until a late hour, the leaders of parties refusing now to bring out their companies for any time less than the whole day. Upon this he took a fancy for driving the chariot himself, and that even publicly. Having made his first experiment in the gardens, amidst crowds of slaves and other rabble, he at length performed in the view of all the people in the Circus Maximus, whilst one of his freedmen dropped the napkin in the place where the magistrates used to give the signal. Not satisfied with exhibiting various specimens of his skill in those arts at Rome, he went over to Achaia, as has been already said, principally for this purpose. The several cities in which solemn trials of musical skill used to be publicly held had resolved to send him the crowns belonging to those who bore away the prize. These he accepted so graciously that he not only gave the deputies who brought them an immediate audience, but even invited them to his table, 
being requested by some of them to sing at supper, and prodigiously applauded, he said, the Greeks were the only people who had an ear for music, and were the only good judges of him and his attainments. Without delay he commenced his journey, and on his arrival at Cassiope exhibited his first musical performance before the altar of Jupiter Cassius. He afterwards appeared at the celebration of all public games in Greece, for such as fell in different years he brought within the compass of one, and some he ordered to be celebrated a second time in the same year. At Olympia, likewise, contrary to custom, he appointed a public performance in music, and that he might meet with no interruption in this employment, when he was informed by his freedman Helius that affairs at Rome required his presence, he wrote to him in these words, Though now all your hopes and wishes are for my speedy return, yet you ought rather to advise and hope that I may come back with a character worthy of Nero. During the time of his musical performance, nobody was allowed to stir out of the theatre upon any account, however necessary, insomuch that it is said some women with child were delivered there. Many of the spectators being quite wearied with hearing and applauding him, because the town gates were shut, slipped privately over the walls, or, counterfeiting themselves dead, were carried out for their funeral. With what extreme anxiety he engaged in these contests, with what keen desire to bear away the prize, and with how much awe of the judges, is scarcely to be believed. As if his adversaries had been on a level with himself, he would watch them narrowly, defame them privately, and sometimes upon meeting them rail at them in very scurrilous language, or bribe them if they were better performers than himself. He always addressed the judges with the most profound reverence before he began, telling them he had done all things that were necessary by way of preparation, but that the issue of the approaching trial was in the hand of fortune, and that they, as wise and skilful men, ought to exclude from their judgment things merely accidental. Upon their encouraging him to have a good heart, he went off with more assurance, but not entirely free from anxiety, interpreting the silence and modesty of some of them into sourness and ill-nature, and saying that he was suspicious of them. In these contests he adhered so strictly to the rules, that he never durst spit, nor wipe the sweat from his forehead in any other way than with his sleeve. Having, in the performance of a tragedy, dropped his sceptre, and not quickly recovering it, he was in a great fright lest he should be set aside for the miscarriage, and could not regain his assurance until an actor who stood by swore he was certain it had not been observed in the midst of the acclamations and exultations of the people. When the prize was adjudged to him, he always proclaimed it himself, and even entered the lists with the heralds. That no memory or the least monument might remain of any other victor in the sacred Grecian games, he ordered all their statues and pictures to be pulled down, dragged away with hooks, and thrown into the common sewers. He drove the chariot with various numbers of horses, and at the Olympic Games with no fewer than ten, though in a poem of his he had reflected upon Mithridates for that innovation. Being thrown out of his chariot, he was again replaced, but could not retain his seat, and was obliged to give up before he reached the goal, but was crowned notwithstanding. On his departure he declared the whole province a free country, and conferred upon the judges in the several games the freedom of Rome, with large sums of money. All these favours he proclaimed himself with his own voice, from the middle of the stadium, 
during the solemnity of the Isthmian Games. On his return from Greece, arriving at Naples, because he had commenced his career as a public performer in that city, he made his entrance in a chariot drawn by white horses through a breach in the city wall, according to the practice of those who were victorious in the sacred Grecian games. In the same manner he entered Antium, Alba, and Rome. He made his entry into the city, riding in the same chariot in which Augustus had triumphed, in a purple tunic and a cloak embroidered with golden stars, having on his head the crown won at Olympia, and in his right hand that which was given him at the Parthian games, the rest being carried in a procession before him, with inscriptions denoting the places where they had been won, from whom, and in what plays or musical performances, whilst a train followed him with loud acclamations, crying out that they were the emperor's attendants and the soldiers of his triumph. Having then caused an arch of the Circus Maximus to be taken down, he passed through the breach, as also through the Velabrum and the Forum, to the Palatine Hill and the Temple of Apollo. Everywhere as he marched along, victims were slain, while the streets were strewed with saffron, and birds, chaplets, and sweetmeats scattered abroad. He suspended the sacred crowns in his chamber about his beds, and caused statues of himself to be erected in the attire of a harper and as his likeness stamped upon the coin in the same dress. After this period he was so far from abating anything of his application to music, that for the preservation of his voice he never addressed the soldiers but by messages, or with some person to deliver his speeches for him, when he thought fit to make his appearance amongst them. Nor did he ever do anything, either in jest or earnest, without a voice-master standing by, to caution him against overstraining his vocal organs, and to apply a handkerchief to his mouth when he did. He offered his friendship, or avowed open enmity to many, according as they were lavish or sparing in giving him their applause. Petulancy, lewdness, luxury, avarice, and cruelty he practised at first with reserve and in private, as if prompted to them only by the folly of youth, but even then the world was of opinion that they were the faults of his nature, and not of his age. After it was dark he used to enter the taverns, disguised in a cap or a wig, and ramble about the streets in sport, which was not void of mischief. He used to beat those he met coming home from supper, and if they made any resistance, would wound them and throw them into the common sewer. He broke open and robbed shops, establishing an auction at home for selling his booty, in the scuffles which took place on those occasions, he often ran the hazard of losing his eyes and even his life, being beaten almost to death by a senator for handling his wife indecently. After this adventure, he never again ventured abroad at that time of night without some tribunes following him at a little distance. In the daytime, he would be carried to the theatre, incognito in a litter, placing himself upon the upper part of the proscenium, where he not only witnessed the quarrels which arose on account of the performances, but also encouraged them. When they came to blows, and stones and pieces of broken benches began to fly about, he threw them plentifully amongst the people, and once even broke a praetor's head. His vices gaining strength by degrees, he laid aside his jocular amusements and all disguise, breaking out into enormous crimes without the least attempt to conceal them. His revels were prolonged from midday to midnight, 
while he was frequently refreshed by warm baths, and in the summer-time by such as were cooled with snow. He often supped in public, in the Naumachia with the sluices shut, or in the Campus Martius, or the Circus Maximus, being waited upon at table by common prostitutes of the town, and Syrian strumpets and glee-girls. As often as he went down the Tiber to Ostia, or coasted through the Gulf of Baiae, booths furnished as brothels and eating-houses were erected along the shore and river-banks, before which stood matrons who, like boards and hostesses, allured him to land. It was also his custom to invite himself to supper with his friends, at one of which was expended no less than four millions of sesterces in chaplets, and at another something more in roses. Besides the abuse of free-born lads, and the debauch of married women, he committed a rape upon Rubria, a vestal virgin. He was upon the point of marrying Acte, his freedwoman, having suborned some men of consular rank to swear that she was of royal descent. He gelded the boy Sporus, and endeavoured to transform him into a woman. He even went so far as to marry him with all the usual formalities of a marriage settlement, the rose-coloured nuptial veil, and a numerous company at the wedding. When the ceremony was over, he had him conducted like a bride to his own house, and treated him as his wife. It was jocularly observed by some person that it would have been well for mankind had such a wife fallen to the lot of his father, Domitius. This Sporus he carried about with him in a litter round the solemn assemblies and fairs of Greece, and afterwards at Rome through the Sigillaria, dressed in the rich attire of an empress, kissing him from time to time as they rode together. That he entertained an incestuous passion for his mother, but was deterred by her enemies, for fear that this haughty and overbearing woman should by her compliance get him entirely into her power and govern in everything, was universally believed especially after he had introduced amongst his concubines a strumpet who was reported to have a strong resemblance to Agrippina. He prostituted his own chastity to such a degree that after he had defiled every part of his person with some unnatural pollution, he at last invented an extraordinary kind of diversion, which was to be let out of a den in the arena, covered with the skin of a wild beast, and then assail with violence the private parts both of men and women, while they were bound to stakes. After he had vented this furious passion upon them, he finished the play in the embraces of his freedman Doriphorus, to whom he was married in the same way that Sporus had been married to himself, imitating the cries and shrieks of young virgins when they are ravished. I have been informed from numerous sources that he firmly believed no man in the world to be chaste, or any part of his person undefiled, but that most men concealed that vice, and were cunning enough to keep it secret. To those, therefore, who frankly owned their unnatural lewdness, he forgave all other crimes. He thought that there was no other use of riches and money than to squander them away profusely, regarding all those as sordid wretches who kept their expenses within due bounds, and extolling those as truly noble and generous souls who lavished away and wasted all they possessed. He praised and admired his uncle Caius upon no account more than for squandering in a short time the vast treasure left him by Tiberius. Accordingly he was himself extravagant and profuse beyond all bounds. 
He spent upon Tiridates eight hundred thousand sesterces a day, a sum almost incredible, and at his departure presented him with upwards of a million. He likewise bestowed upon Menecrates the harper, and Spicillus a gladiator, the estates and houses of men who had received the honour of a triumph. He enriched the usurer, Cercopithecus Penerotes, with estates both in town and country, and gave him a funeral in pomp and magnificence little inferior to that of princes. He never wore the same garment twice. He has been known to stake four hundred thousand sesterces on a throw of the dice. It was his custom to fish with a golden net drawn by silken cords of purple and scarlet. It is said that he never travelled with less than a thousand baggage-carts, the mules being all shod with silver, and the drivers dressed in scarlet jackets of the finest Canusian cloth, with a numerous train of footmen, and troops of mazacans with bracelets on their arms, and mounted upon horses in splendid trappings. In nothing was he more prodigal than in his buildings. He completed his palace by continuing it from the Palatine to the Esquiline Hill, calling the building at first only the Passage, but after it was burnt down and rebuilt, the Golden House. Of its dimensions and furniture it may be sufficient to say thus much. The porch was so high that there stood in it a colossal statue of himself, a hundred and twenty feet in height, and the space included in it was so ample that it had triple porticoes a mile in length, and a lake like a sea, surrounded with buildings which had the appearance of a city. Within its area were cornfields, vineyards, pastures, and woods, containing a vast number of animals of various kinds, both wild and tame. In other parts it was entirely overlaid with gold, and adorned with jewels and mother-of-pearl. The supper-rooms were vaulted, and compartments of the ceilings, inlaid with ivory, were made to revolve and scatter flowers, while they contained pipes which shed unguents upon the guests. The chief banqueting-room was circular, and revolved perpetually, night and day, in imitation of the motion of the celestial bodies. The baths were supplied with water from the sea and the albula. Upon the dedication of this magnificent house after it was finished, all he said in approval of it was, that he had now a dwelling fit for a man. He commenced making a pond for the reception of all the hot streams from Baiae, which he designed to have continued from Misenum to the Avernian Lake, in a conduit, enclosed in galleries, and also a canal from Avernum to Ostia, that ships might pass from one to the other without a sea voyage. The length of the proposed canal was one hundred and sixty miles, and it was intended to be of breadth sufficient to permit ships with five banks of oars to pass each other. For the execution of these designs, he ordered all prisoners in every part of the empire to be brought to Italy, and that even those who were convicted of the most heinous crimes, in lieu of any other sentence, should be condemned to work at them. He was encouraged to all this wild and enormous profusion, not only by the great revenue of the empire, but by the sudden hopes given him of an immense hidden treasure, which Queen Dido, upon her flight from Tyre, had brought with her to Africa. This, a Roman knight pretended to assure him on good grounds, was still hid there in some deep caverns, and might with a little labour be recovered. End of Nero Part 2